Just like you said, Hope. It's wide enough for two, but not for three. You damn fool. You had us. You just wouldn't pull the trigger. Because you're yellow. He's yellow. Just plain yellow. Yeah, you're yellow, Hope. Cable is yellow. <laughs> yellow. Oh, Cable's yellow. Oh, Cable is white. Oh, Cable's dying. But that's all right. Taggart and Bowen, the slick as you please, took all the water and left for the... Hey, fellas. Yellow. Leave me a little. Please. It's all yours, Cable. 50,000 gallons of sand. <laughs> They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Blue Dallas Multipass. 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 You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Good morning. Welcome to Celluloid Days. I'm your host, Jeff Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. You know, many times I pick a film because it allows me to talk about the people involved. Like a couple weeks ago, I picked Lucky Night so I could talk about Myrna Loy. Today I picked the film The Ballad of Cable Hogue from 1970 so I could talk about Sam Peckinpah. But as I did my research, I learned there was probably... Too much to talk about when it comes to the man. He was a very complicated person. As it turns out, there's also a lot to talk about when it comes to the Ballad of Cable Hogue. So I'm going to talk about that more than Sam Peckinpah, though I'm going to talk about Sam as well. And also, I should say that everything I'm going to talk about, well, I could talk ten times more about it. And uh, This is just a brief overview because, you know, you don't want to listen to me talk all day. Sam Peckinpah was born David Samuel Peckinpah on February 21, 1925. His parents were David Edward and Fern Louise Peckinpah, and they lived in Fresno, California. Sam, he wasn't a very good student, often skipping school to spend time doing cowboy things. He was constantly fighting, so his parents enrolled him in the San Rafael Military Academy. In 1943, he joined the United States Marine Corps and was eventually sent to China where he had the task of disarming Japanese soldiers after World War II. He would later claim that he saw some really horrible things in China and some have attributed that to his depiction of violence in his films as well as his alcohol and drug abuse. One experience he would talk about later was being on a train when a sniper outside fired and he saw the bullet come through the window and hit the man next to him. He said that time slowed down, like a second took a year. That could explain Sam's use of slow motion later on in some of his more violent films, because Sam was famous for pushing the violence envelope, so much so that many called him Bloody Sam. He was also known to be a terror on the set, Often fueled by alcohol and drugs, he would fire crewmen on his films over the smallest thing. Yet I don't think anybody can deny that he made some of the most unique films of the era. After the Marines, he studied history at the California State University, Fresno, and after the University of Southern California, where he spent three seasons as the director of the Huntington Park Civic Theater. 
That led to work in the new field of television. Even in TV, the difficulty he would become famous for would begin to show, like when he was kicked off the set of the Liberace show for not wearing a tie. Though he would also write some classic shows, such as Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, Broken Arrow, Klondike, and The Rifleman. Oddly, Sam worked on the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers as a dialogue coach, and he played Charlie, the gas station meter reader. Sam would later claim that he wrote much of the dialogue in the film, though some have disputed that. He also developed the show The Westerner, starring Brian Keith. It was canceled after 13 episodes. I've never seen the show, but apparently Sam was trying to make a Western more for adults than kids and go beyond the romantic myth of the Old West to show violence for what it really was. But all his work in television led to a career in films. His first film was called The Deadly Companions, which starred Brian Keith. He didn't have complete control, and eventually the film was taken away and re-edited without his permission, and he was never very happy with the results. But that led to his next film, Ride the High Country, that really showed what he could do. It was a huge success, and Peckinpah, who wrote much of the screenplay, became the next hot Hollywood director. It was during his next film that things went a little off the rails. It was 1965's Major Dundee. This film should probably have an episode of its own because it was troubled from the very start. They began filming without a completed script. And from what I read, Peckinpah was drunk a lot on the set. At one point, as the story goes, star Charlton Heston, who recommended Peckinpah for the job, threatened to kill him with a cavalry saber. It also was the start of Peckinpah's tradition of firing crew members during production. Peckinpah would later say in an interview, I made trouble with shoddy workmanship and with shabby, shabby people, people who don't do their jobs, and whiners, and complainers, and bitchers, and the sore asses who talk a good piece of work and never produce. I don't know why the hell they went into the motion picture business in the first place. It's certainly not to make pictures. It's a sort of masturbation or something, and I don't like to be around them. Richard Harris was the co-star in the film, and according to the book A Man Called Harris, The Life of Richard Harris, many times Peckinpah would get too drunk and Heston would take over the director duties. Major Dundee went way over budget, and it almost ruined Peckinpah's career. But as luck would have it, a producer, Daniel Mellick, who was a fan of Peckinpah's work, hired him to direct a made-for-TV film called Noon Wine. The film starred Jason Robarts and Olivia de Havilland, and it was a critical hit, with Peckinpah being nominated by the Writers Guild for Best Television Adaption and the Directors Guild of America for Best Television Direction. And that led to his masterpiece. still a few trails for the kind who'd be cold before they were tame. They called them the Wild Bunch. I'm not going to talk too much about the Wild Bunch. I'm sure you've seen it, and that might be an episode for another day. I will say that, of course, it featured revolutionary camera techniques in which he used different frame rates and multi-angle quick-cut edits to highlight the blood and violence. The Wild Bunch re-established Peckinpah as a major director, but he was still editing that film when he started his next one, the subject of today's show, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. 
The script came to the attention of Peckinpah through Warren Oates years earlier. Peckinpah was broke at the time and had to borrow money to purchase it. Peckinpah said, Gordon Dawson did the rewrites on it. Joan Crawford and Edmund Penny did the script. And I think it's a lovely script. I'm very happy doing it. It's got a lot of warmth, and it's a love story, really, but it again deals with some degree of mortality. Now, apparently, Warren Oates wanted to star in the film, but when Peckinpah was making Noon Wine, he began to see Jason Robarts more and more as the character Cable Hogue. Also, after seeing Stella Stevens in another film, he knew he wanted her to play Hildy the prostitute. It was a big break for Stella. Peckinpah said, I saw a film that she was in, and there was one moment of Stella, and that was it. There was a lot of objections to having her in the cast, of course, by the producers, but by almost everyone in the studio. Honey, you were smelling bad enough to gag a dog off a gut wagon. When asked if it affected her, Stella Stevens said, It affected me profoundly, because I spent my life playing stupid, sexy floozies, big-eyed, big-tit blondes. I was a bit tired of that, quite frankly. When I found something as honest and beautiful as Hildy to play, I wallowed in it. I enjoyed it and grew through it and I think possibly created the best lady I've ever been able to do in film. Another star of the film was David Warner, who plays Reverend Joshua Duncan Sloan. I am the Reverend Joshua Duncan Sloan, preacher to all of eastern Nevada and selected parts of northern Arizona. Well, you're a sorry preacher. Here's a story I found interesting. Warner was pretty much still an unknown who had only done a handful of films in England, but somehow he came to the attention of Peckinpah. Peckinpah sent him the script and Warner accepted. But there was a problem. Warner hated flying and couldn't get himself to board a plane to America. He called his agent and turned down the offer of a lifetime. But Peckinpah arranged for a three-week voyage by boats and trains to get him to Arizona. David Warner was forever grateful that Peckinpah would do such a thing, delay his own film to bring Warner to the set when he could have easily been replaced with another actor. Now, the cast and crew stayed at a place called Echo Bay Lodge in Arizona, everybody except for Jason Robarts. He stayed in his own trailer far away from everybody else. You see, Robarts was a recovering alcoholic and thought it was best not to be around the rest. Robart said, If I had stayed at the motel, I would have been in trouble. I would have never made the film. I would have been hauled away. For the first week, everything went fine. That was until the rains came. But before the rains, they had to blow up a Mexican-headed lizard. Actually, they blew up about four or five lizards. In the script, it was a Gila monster, but Gila monsters are protected by law. So they used Mexican-headed lizards, which look about the same, and they were rigged with explosives. But each time they blew it to pieces, it was never to the satisfaction of Peckinpah. Apparently, if you watch closely, the one that's shot in the film was sewn together by bits of all the ones that had been blown up. The two men who drive the stagecoach in the film are played by the wonderful Slim Pickens and Max Evans. Max was a writer of Western novels and screenplays, and also an old drinking buddy of Peckinpah's. Peckinpah insisted that he play the part, but there was a problem. He wasn't an actor. When Peckinpah asked why he was so stiff during takes, Robarts said because he was scared to death. 
Peckinpah told someone to get him a bottle of wild turkey. Later, Max was smiling and laughing, and Peckinpah asked, What's the matter with him? When told that he was drunk, Peckinpah started yelling at the crewman who gave him the bottle. You're fired! How dare you get an actor drunk? And then the rains came. And that's sort of funny when you think about a film that's about a man who finds water in the desert, in a place that has no water. In fact, the area that they were filming in hadn't had water for decades. But now it rained and rained. How much rain? Actor R.G. Armstrong said, eight solid days of rain. Robbie Viscalia said, 11 solid days. Max Evans said, 15 days. And Robart said, we were in the desert and had 27 days of rain. We started to get back on schedule and the goddamn rain would come. We had to kill all the growing green stuff in the desert. They were the worst storms in 87 years. I think most people agree that it was about two weeks of rain, but then again, who's counting? So right away, the film got behind schedule. And during those rainy days, with nothing to do, all the men, well, they drank. And apparently, they drank a lot. Peckinpah did shoot whenever possible, but his frustration mounted and he began taking it out on the crew and began firing people. Bobby Viscalia said, Sam never fired anyone who didn't deserve it, but he fired people to the point that the unions wouldn't send in replacements. Gordon Dawson, the associate producer on the film, said, How many deserved it? About half. Sam would fly off the handle and say, Get that son of a bitch out of my sight. My deal with him was that he had to say it three times. Dawson would often talk him out of these firings, or not fire them at all, but keep them out of the sight of Peckinpah. Struther Martin was so afraid of Peckinpah that when he had an idea for a scene, he was too afraid to approach him. Can't go it out there, Cable. That right. Wasn't my fault. All I did was... I'm sorry. There was one scene that they were running out of time to film before the sun set. The first time they shot it, Struther Martin messed up. And the second time, probably the last chance they had to get it that day, actor L.Q. Jones was the one who messed up. Peckinpah yelled at Struther, saying, You cocksucker, I'm going to make sure you never work again. When Jones explained to Peckinpah that it was he who messed up, Peckinpah continued to yell at Struther Martin. You stupid son of a bitch, you made me make an ass out of myself like that without telling me it was LQ's fault. You'll never work again. The thing is, Peckinpah worked hard and expected everyone to work just as hard as he did. He said, I'm up at four in the morning looking at my day's work, which I already sketched in before. I try to know every possible approach, then I pick the one I want. I'm always prepared. That's why I lose 15 to 20 pounds on every picture. It's like an endurance race or something. And remember, at the same time he was making this film, he was still putting the final touches on The Wild Bunch. The Ballad of Cable Hogue was done filming about a month over schedule and about $70,000 over budget. Now, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, well, it's a redemption story, or maybe a failed redemption story. Like in many Peckinpah films, the main character, Cable Hogue, is neither a good man nor a bad man. In fact, the name Cable is a combination of Cain and Abel. 
You see, the film starts out with him being double-crossed by his two partners. Call me Yella. Leave me the dry and blow away. Sing a song about it! Laugh at old Cable Hogan. I'll get out! I'll get out! Don't you worry none about that! You just worry about when I get out. Go find your taggart! You're born, you mealy mouth little pimp. You never could tell gold signs from lizard shit, and there's a big difference. A big difference! I'll live to spit on your graves! So he's left wandering the desert without any water, certain to die. And, very amusingly, he begins to talk to God and sort of makes a deal with God. At the last minute, almost to the point of death during a sandstorm, he finds water. And it turns out the place where he finds the water is the perfect place to sell water to people who pass by on a wagon train. Be worth a lot. The fellow was to find it. Worth a damn sight more than gold. Driver, it's getting dark. Generally does about this time. Damnedest thing I ever saw. I am to start this vehicle once, or I shall Got enough water to hold you. The stage again. Never anywhere. Just Daniel. He makes a successful business out of selling water and food. One day in town, he meets Hildy, played by Stella Stevens, a prostitute with a heart of gold, and eventually the two fall for each other. He also meets the Reverend Joshua Douglas Sloan, played by David Warner. Come, child. Take my hand. Lord works in many ways. It all seems to be going fine, but Cable never loses his quest for vengeance at the two that had done him wrong. It ain't worth it, Hogue. Revenge always turns sour. You ought to just forget him. Uh, some things a man can't forget. I got me two of them. Tiger and Bowen. I've been waiting a long time, Hildy. And that's the real story, that Hilda gives him the opportunity to forget about revenge and go to San Francisco with her, but he doesn't take that opportunity, instead stays. Therefore, Cable misses his chance at a happy life. And sorry if I'm spoiling the ending, but by failing to forgive, he pays for it at the end of the film. Hang in there, preacher. Now, a man is made out of bad as well as good, all of us. Cable Hogue was born into this world... Nobody knows when or where. He came stumbling out of the wilderness like a prophet of old. Sounds right. Is right. Out of the barren wastes, he carved himself a one-man kingdom. Well, I don't know about Some that. said he was ruthless. Who said that? <laughs> More than one, Hogue. But you could do worse, Lord. And to take to your bosom, Cable Hogue. He wasn't really a good man. He wasn't a bad man. But, Lord, he was a man. Amen to that. So it's time for my favorite scene. And, you know, I really enjoyed the part where Cable is talking to God when he's desperate for water. Man, four days without water. You don't think I put in my suffering time? You ought to try going dry for a spell. Listen to me. 
That's to me. If I don't get some soon, I ain't gonna have no chance to repent. Careful now. You're about to get my dander up. And then there's the romantic part in which Hildy comes to live with him and, and they sing together, very touching. Down there sitting on a seed Gonna trace your footsteps Underneath the weeds Gonna string you up some dandelions You're gonna wear them as beads You'll be dancing with lace wings and dimples On a big city sign I also like the fact that at one part he says Hildy is free to do whatever she wants. Hildy, who gives her all the help she needs and wants? You, brother? Hildy ain't mine. Nobody owns Hildy. She's got her life and I got mine. Right here. Right where I want to be. That's not exactly true, Cable. You love that girl. And he doesn't care if she works as a prostitute, yet shows jealousy when the Reverend puts the moves on her. Again, showing the two sides of the coin that is Cable Hogue. One thing I really didn't care for is that twice in this film, Peckinpah speeds up the action for comic effect. Like the scene in which Hildy is naked, trying to hide before the stagecoach arrives. Three hours early. What? Stagecoach. Well, go get me a robe. I don't really think it works with the tone of the film, but that might just be me. Also, for anybody out there who's interested in seeing Stella Stevens' butt, it is featured in the film. The part I find fascinating about this film is that it's such a contrast to The Wild Bunch. Both films are about older men during the end of the Wild West, but of course The Wild Bunch is a lot of killing and blood, and Cable Hogue is more of a romantic story. Hildy, I don't know why you're here, but I'm mighty glad you are. I was asked to leave by the good people of the town. Good people? Dead dog? I never met any. Except you. Yes, a couple people get shot, but they are quick, not the bloody slow motion deaths like in the Wild Bunch. In the book, Sam Peckinpah by Douglas McKinney, he writes, The Ballad of Cable Hogue is a film Peckinpah should be remembered for personally. Without arguing whether one film of Peckinpah has more depth than another, The Ballad of Cable Hogue comes closest to being a full personal statement. Now, I really enjoyed this film, but I wonder what others thought of it. And of course, for that, I'm going to turn to the IMDb user reviews. Munilaw31 gave it the mighty 10 stars, and he or she wrote, Lyrical and touching fable lamenting the passing of the mythic Old West. If you think Sam Peckinpah only made violent films, you owe it to yourself to rent this from your local video store. A lovely, lyrical, and emotionally satisfying fable about the last Western hero trying to scratch out an existence as he watches the era pass him by. 
wonderful performances by Jason Robart, Stella Stevens, and David Warner, an entertaining script all directed with a light and subtle touch, for a change, by Sam Peckinpah. Although I am a great fan of The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, and Major Dundee, Cable Hogue is, in my opinion, Peckinpah's masterpiece. Easygoer101 gave it 8 stars and wrote, Terrific Peckinpah Western. This is a wonderful film. The cast is outstanding. Jason Robarts is perfect for the lead. The talented and gorgeous, as we see, Stella Stevens is also wonderfully cast. I love seeing David Warner in an American film, a Peckinpah Western, no less. Along with Peckinpah regulars, IQ Jones, Slim Pickens, Struther Martin, R.G. Armstrong, and even Easy Pickens, yes, Slim's brother. Jerry Goldsmith's arrangement adds so much. Even if I was unaware who the director was, I could watch any 10 minutes and recognize it's a Sam Peckinpah film. Although quite not as good as Junior Bonner or The Getaway, the film stands up right along them. A must-see, especially for Peckinpah fans. A8SCS1 gave it only five stars and had this to say. Time to open a petrol station. This film is a comedy that is funny in parts. Robarts is a grumpy sort of character that you can laugh at during his initial social interactions, whilst David Warner is hilarious as the devious preacher, with nothing more than tits on his mind. In one standout scene, he starts groping a married woman who is grieving a personal loss. His technique is to be noted. I've never seen it on film before. It reminds you that this is a 70s film all about breasts. However, set against this are sped up sections a la Benny Hill. Not funny. The film is okay, let down by an unconvincing relationship with Stella Stevens. No way would she be interested in Robart's trap of a figure. The film also has a very peculiar ending that just doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the film and comes out of nowhere. Robarts is out of character for this sequence. Finally, there is a blasted awful song about a butterfly morning. What a load of rubbish. GJC1234 only saw it fit to get three stars and wrote, If you've seen Once Upon a Time in the West, don't see this. This movie was a low point for both Jason Robarts and Sam Peckinpah. Major plot points are taken directly from Sergio Leone's masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in the West, released two years earlier and also featuring Robarts. A man finds a watering hole is found in the desert, being the only water for miles in every direction. He plans on building a station around the hole, and to ensure there's a love interest, he falls in love with a prostitute. To this add on an intemperate preacher, bad music, silly fast action, even sillier TNA shots, and there you go! There is little question why this failed at the box office. The real question is, how did it make it that far? And for this one, oddly, there are no one-star reviews, so I guess that says something. Now, hold on. You just came up and leave the station like this. Well, what are we going to do between Dead Dog and Lizard? Like one user review said, the music is from Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry was an American composer and conductor 
who lived from 1929 to 2004. In his TV and film career, which lasted from 1950 to 2003, he did a mountain of work with almost 300 IMDb credits. He was nominated for six Grammy Awards, five Primetime Emmy Awards, nine Golden Globe Awards, four British Academy Film Awards, and 18 Academy Awards with one win for 1976's The Omen. He composed the scores for five of the films in the Star Trek franchise and three in the Rambo franchise, as well as for Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Tora Tora Tora, Patent, Chinatown, Alien, Poltergeist, Medicine Man, Gremlins, Hoosiers, Total Recall, Air Force One, L.A. Confidential, and The Mummy, working with directors including Robert Weiss, Howard Hawks, Otto Preminger, Joe Dante, Richard Donner, Richard Flesher, Ridley Scott, Steven Spielberg, Michael Crichton, Roman Polanski, Gordon Douglas, and Paul Verhoeven. So he was a bit accomplished. Anyway, for the film The Ballad of Cable Hogue, the music seems more subdued than the usual Western music of the era. After reading some of the IMDb user reviews, this music is not for everyone, but I personally think it worked. It fit the tone of the film. Now, if you're looking for a shoot-em-up western with good guys and bad guys, you won't find it with Cable Hogue. If you're looking for something like The Wild Bunch, don't look to this film. As Roger Ebert said... A fine movie, a wonderful comic tale we didn't quite expect from the director who seems to be more at home with violence than humor. And David Kerr said, Sam Peckinpah followed the Wild Bunch with this intimate, eccentric, appealing 1970 comedy, which treats many of the same themes in a soft, regretful mode. May I ask a question? Is it dangerous? Louise, your husband was one of the best frogmen in our outfit. If he passes these tests that I'm going to put him through, you haven't got a thing to worry about. I'm sorry, Doug. I don't want you to go. But Louise, 300 a week plus expenses. We can't afford to pass up a deal like this. You're over 30, my darling husband. And besides, you've got Carol and me to think about now. Okay. I guess I know when I'm licked. A little bit before I go. Yes, this film was considered a flop when it came out. Uh, People didn't want to see Sam Peckinpah doing a romantic comedy. They wanted blood and guts. So his next film, he gave the people what they wanted, Straw Dogs, a film that is very uncomfortable to watch from start to finish. The most bizarre part of his career was his 1978 film Convoy, starring Chris Christopherson and Ali McGraw. It was a film made to capitalize on the CB radio craze of the 70s, and oddly, it was his most commercially successful film. And if rumors are to be believed, he was drunk or stoned much of the time, and Chris Christopherson ended up directing much of it. Hey, if you've got any thoughts on Peckinpah, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, or anything else connected with today's show, you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid all mean one word. You can email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. 
You can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And I have a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Or is it an X page now? Let's just keep it Twitter. Anyway, next week I'm going to do something different. A few months ago, I did the Life and Times of Scotty Beckett. And that was one of my most downloaded episodes, so I'm going to try it again. I'm going to do the Life and Times of Madge Meredith. She was an actress who began a career in the 1940s and whose real life contained murder, a kidnapping, and a prison sentence. I hope you'll join us. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Take care, and I'll be back next Wednesday. You're the best. Stay healthy. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know the small You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.